When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're asking the question, can Joe Biden heal America? It's a question I'm sure a number of you have thought about in the last couple of weeks as we witnessed those scenes in Capitol Hill and the subsequent turmoil which has engulfed American politics. So we assembled a cracking panel of speakers from across the political spectrum to discuss and debate whether America can be put back together again and whether Joe Biden is the right president to do it. It's a really fascinating conversation and it was hosted by Justin Webb, presenter on BBC Radio 4's Today programme. So now let's go to the episode. Thank you very much. Real pleasure to be here. And um, I was myself based in the United States for many years. And I remember when Obama was elected One of the jokes, it was actually a front page headline in The Onion, the satirical newspaper, and it went like this, their main headline, Black Man Given Nation's Worst Job. And there is a way in which being President of the United States has always been a difficult job. We all understand that. But my goodness, at this moment, when Joe Biden uh, is sworn in, he is taking on one heck of a lot of problems and he has an extraordinary job ahead of him. There is absolutely no question about that. Um, The Great Reset then, can Joe Biden heal America? That is what we are going to talk about and then answer questions on questions that will um, come from you. Let me introduce our speakers first of all. Sarah Churchwell is with us, who's a professor of American literature, chair of the public understanding of the humanities at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. She's the author of Behold America, A History of America First and the American Dream, as well as uh, Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby and the Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe as well. She comments regularly on the arts, on culture and on politics on radio and TV. She's been on Question Time, Newsnight, The Review Show, even the Today programme. Uh, Sita uh, Wanevu is also with us, who is a staff writer at The New Republic. Now, he's a former staff writer at The New Yorker and Slate as well, the former editor-in-chief of the Southside Weekly, which is a Chicago alternative newspaper. And Danielle Plecker also joins us, senior fellow in foreign and defence policy uh, studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on US foreign policy generally and the Middle East Uh, specifically. She is also the co-host of the podcast with the intriguing name, What the Hell is Going On? Without further ado, let us um, get down to the business. The Great Reset, Can Joe Biden Heal America? Can I ask you this, um, first of all, Asita? How active do you think Joe Biden has to be in his first hundred days, how how not engaged as a person, because he obviously is, but when it comes to actually doing things, practical things, how important is it that he gets off to an active start? 
Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I think that Joe Biden knows and the whole country knows that he has to be extraordinarily active. We're in the middle of this huge public health crisis and an economic crisis as well. And given that, we saw Joe Biden within the past couple of days release a plan to deal with the coronavirus that will cost, I think, nearly $2 trillion on top of the other spending that's already been done over the course of last year to, to address the crisis. That includes direct payments, that includes a boost on employment benefits, money for states and localities, money for vaccinations, everything that people have sort of been crying out for from the Trump administration uh, is included in this package. And so that's going to be a very big piece of legislation that we're going to see him pushing forward right off the bat. And we can expect to see another coronavirus bill, I think, later in the year after that. So right away, he's going to be faced with an epochal situation in this country. We haven't really faced anything like it before, at least since the influenza pandemic early in the 20th century. So, you know, it, he's, he's already going to be a president faced with a monumental challenge on top of everything else he hopes to do and hopes to accomplish in terms of his policy agenda, but also the task he's spit out for himself, I think, spiritually to heal this country. That's a task I don't really think he's capable of accomplishing, but it's one that I think the American people are going to look to him to see actual progress on. Do you think he's capable of accomplishing it, Sarah? Well, I don't think anybody is capable of accomplishing it single-handedly, and nobody's capable of accomplishing it immediately. I think that he is uh, capable of starting to starting that process, which is um, deeply necessary. So I would use, you know, words like remedial or something rather than healing. You know, we're not going to just suddenly, you know, get better. The divisions are very deep and very real. And in my view, the Trump administration has spent four years poisoning public discourse and political discourse in America um, to a degree that we won't simply reverse. But, you know, I, I think that I actually think that Biden is the right person for this moment. Not because I think that he's, you know, some kind of messiah who's going to come forward and, you know, fix everything, as I said, but rather because because of all the reasons why people, particularly, you know, on the progressive left, see him as being too centrist. But actually, that means that he is, in, and we saw this through the election, that he was able to pull together the groups that have been pushing further and further apart. And I think that's the right he called himself a transitional president. He said that he sees himself as a transitional president. That's, to me, is a different statement from saying a centrist president. He's not trying to get, I don't think he's trying to push forward a centrist platform. I think he's trying to figure out what a transition to the next generation of political leadership in America might look like. And I think he probably is the best suited to do that. And I think that the United States right now desperately needs somebody like that. So I, you know, I hope I am hopeful, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think that we have a desperately long, uh, you know, and, and, and a high mountain to climb. And I'm and I'm certainly not suggesting that it will be easy for him to do or that, as I say, that he has some kind of, you know, magical curative powers. Um, of course not. Uh, Danielle, do you think he can? I think it's going to be a very tall order. I think, you know, both Sarah and, and Osita laid out the challenge that's in front of him. And I think that, you know, in addition to all of the obvious challenges that we see, you know, recovery from, from, from COVID, we're not even at the recovery stage yet. You know, the administration of, of the vaccine, which we were all talking about before, before we came on, you know, is much more complex than I think than, than even the most pessimistic among us imagined. Then we've got the challenge, of course, of the economic recovery that comes from that. Plus, of course, the world keeps going on. And, and then there's another analogy that, that I've, I've started to use to describe a little bit the challenge that, 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 well, in a couple of days, President Biden will face from the Democratic Party, which is that when, you know, it's a little bit like the Mujahideen in, in, in Afghanistan. You know, when you have an enemy like the Soviet Union, it's very easy to, to have everybody unified under one umbrella, fighting this common, dreadful, odious enemy. Not to, not to analogize Trump to <laughs> to the Soviet Union and the Democratic Party to the Mujahideen. But, you know, if the shoe fits, the problem is that with an enemy like the Donald Trump, it's very easy to find unity in opposition. You're going to find not just a lot of uh, all of the Democratic Party, but you're going to find a lot of moderate and, and even some pretty conservative Republicans who were repulsed by, by Trump, who, who are all going to stand in, in one spot. But of course, once he's off the stage and it is a totally reasonable question to ask whether he'll be off the stage. But once he is at least out of the White House, 
Then, of course, all of the fissures within the Democratic Party that exist and that are going to be, I would say, a, a real devilment for, for, for Joe Biden as he tries to govern are going to be in place. So, you know, a little bit, a little bit like the dog who wanted to catch the car. He wanted to be president and now he's caught the car and I'm not quite sure what he's going to do with it. Sarah, it's a fair point to make, isn't it? He is going to have his own party to deal with and that could be, um, well, it's not, I suppose, his greatest problem. It's certainly on his list of problems. Look, I mean, I think, you know, the, Dem, the we call it the Dems in disarray, right? It's an old trope, but everybody likes to wheel it out that the Dems are always in disarray and somehow the GOP is always united. There are deeper fissures in the GOP right now, post-Trump, than there are in the Democrats. The Democrats are on the same side about trying to figure out how we can move toward a more progressive future. Yes, they're going to have policy battles about what that progressive platform needs to look like. We know that. And they're having disagreements about strategy. And, they're, you know, and that's, that's appropriate. It's a big tent party. That's what big tent parties do. Um, so it's easy to trot out the idea that there are these deep divisions in the Democratic Party. But the Democratic Party is considerably more unified than the GOP is right now. And those fissures are the ones that the GOP is going to have to deal with. And the idea that, you know, that the Democrats and the and and um, and Biden are not going to have an opponent once Trump is off stage, and as Danny rightly says, question of how much off stage he'll be anyway. But you know, the 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 GOP who just stood up, you know, only ten of them voted to impeach a president who vote who uh, incited an insurrection. Um, the rest of them are still in lockstep. McConnell is still, you know, indicating that he will play as much of a spoiler as he can. It's not as if that the the Democrats are not going to have opponents against whom they can unite. And the GOP has an awful lot of rethinking it needs to do post-Trump about what identity it's going to have. And the fact that so many of its own voters believe right now that Biden is not a legitimate president. We've talked about the economic crisis and the public health crisis, but we're also profoundly in a political crisis, very obviously. And that's the challenge on both sides of the aisle. I want to get to the GOP because obviously part of that question, can Joe Biden heal America, depends on what happens to the party that he is not in charge of. And, and that's hugely important. And I promise you we will get it. Just sticking on this point about the Democrats, though, who after all are in, in power now and in power in both houses of Congress. And there's going to be an expectation, isn't there, a seat among Democrats are not just on the radical way. And Robert Reich was writing about this quite recently, saying that that you know Joe Biden can't. He's, he's got to be himself, uh, adventurous and 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 determined to go down a particular line. Just the idea of coming in and being this kind of centrist who's been around for decades, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, isn't going to cut it. Is that is it at least fair to say that? Well, I think it's absolutely fair. I'm a radical, so I would say that. But you, increasingly, as you mentioned, you have people fairly in the middle of the political spectrum, who understand that this is an important moment for the country, again, in terms of the coronavirus situation, but also in terms of a number of policy fights that Democrats have been wanting to make progress on for some time. Now, when Obama came in 2009, he also had full control of the federal government. The issue was the structural constraints that are embedded within the American political system that the Democratic Party decided that they didn't want to overcome, right? So things like the Senate filibuster, uh, which imposes a effective 60-vote threshold within the Senate. You can have the chamber, but if you leave the filibuster in place, it's going to be very difficult for you to pass anything, whether it's radical policy or, or moderate left policy, without the additional support of Republicans. And we saw over the course of the Obama administration, Republicans express unified opposition to his entire agenda. So the biggest enemy, to my mind, that Joe Biden is going to face in implementing policy is the party's own inertia. They have an opportunity now not to make the same mistake that they did under Obama and to eliminate the Senate filibuster so they can actually pass legislation. And it's unclear that they're actually going to do it. I mean, you have a number of people who've come around over the past year and said that the filibuster is, is bad news. Barack Obama said this at John Lewis's funeral last year and said that if it, it took eliminating the filibuster to pass a voting rights act that would protect the franchise from Republican attacks, then sure everybody has the right to vote, then they should eliminate the filibuster. Joe Biden, I think, in recent weeks has said he, he is open to the idea, but there hasn't been a real forceful yes from him on that. You have Democratic moderates like Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema who oppose this move in the Senate right now. So I think this is going to be the, the big challenge in the next couple of weeks we're going to look towards, because if they do not actually make the procedural changes necessary to pass big legislation, it's going to be a, a kind of a dead presidency. I mean, you can do things via the executive as Obama tried to late in his term. That's ultimately stuff that's going to go probably in many cases to courts that are now controlled by the Republican Party. 
So this is, this is the challenge for him. And it's not just progressives who recognize this reality. I think more and more people in the party, certainly all of the interest groups, the unions, the immigration groups, the gun groups, the climate groups, all of these different coalitions within the Democratic Party understand the nature of this moment and what needs to be done to actually implement policy. And it's up to him if he wants to push those changes forward. Because what I want to do as well, because we've got limited time before we get to our question and answer session, is turn to this business of, of the Republicans and what that party does, because obviously so much of this equation, can Joe Biden heal America, is dependent on the Republicans really being willing to be healed and brought in. And plainly, an awful lot of them won't be, a lot of Trump supporters won't be. But to what extent do you think, can he realistically reach out now, not just in Congress, but more widely in the nation, to people who have voted Trump and might be persuaded that actually the Biden presidency can work for them? Well, I mean, that's, that's exactly the right question, isn't it? You know, if his goal is to reach out to you know, the 70 plus million people who voted for Donald Trump and to appeal to them, then I think that'll be a very, uh, a very shrewd thing for him to do. If he pursues the line that Osita sort of, you know, self-declared radical, I never am sure exactly what radical means anymore. But, uh, but in this instance, some of these sort of very institutional changes that, that, that some uh, on, the, on the far left of the Democratic Party have advocated, then I think he's not going to be able to bridge that gap. Because I think this is the very fear that some people expressed. If I were Joe Biden, I would have been very, very happy with a Senate in Republican hands because I wouldn't have been able to do some of the things that I'm being called on to do by the fringe of my party. And Sarah's sort of shaking her head from her perch in, in London. But, you know, having spent, God knows, 35 perhaps even more years, maybe I shouldn't even admit that, in, in Washington, let me just say, the first thing is that that when, when a party does these things, they they for some reason, seem to live in the moment. And they fail to understand that when you make institutional changes, those changes apply to the other party when they're in power. And this is how we turn into a banana republic, okay? This is how we end up having, you know, repudiating repudiating what the previous president had done, ripping up the previous president's executive orders, trying to reverse the efforts of the, the previous president. That's, for example, just to pick an issue on which I, I think, you know, uh, reasonable people can actually agree in America to, to pick an issue like immigration. You know, if in fact we are ever to come forward and to have a solution to our serious immigration problem, to the fact that we have 11 million undocumented people in this country who live here, many of whom grew up here, and yet who have no reasonable path forward towards a solution for their lack of documentation. You know, there is something where there's a middle road where we should be able to find something to answer that. But if, in fact, we pursue a more extreme path, what you're going to see is that the next president goes to court, seeks to reverse it. And and this is, a, this is not the kind of democratic governance that normal people, not people who, who do this for a living, I exclude people like me from the normal label, but that's not the kind of thing that normal people are looking for when they're looking for good governance. Sarah? Can I... Can I yeah, can I come back? So as far as normal people go, I don't know who normal people are or how we decide who's normal. I do know that the vast majority of the platforms that are supported by the Democratic Party are supported by a majority of the voting population, like gun reform, like health care, like a living wage. These are basic, basic progressive rights that are not seen as fringe, except they are seen as center, as center left and as reasonable proposals by a vast majority of the American voting population. And it suits the GOP and it suits Trumpists to frame them as fringe, lefty, weirdo, socialist positions. And that's what they did throughout the election. But that is not the view of the majority of the electorate. As far, I want to go back to this question about whether Biden would have been better off without uh, uh, the Senate. Of course not. And, and I think that that is, you know, Biden did not try to become president so that he could throw up his hands and say, oops, I wasn't able to do anything. Now, I do agree with Osita that there is a real question about how much appetite for a fight 
the elderly, and it is a gerontocracy, and that is a problem, how much the elderly political leadership, on, again, uh, and it's a gerontocracy on both sides, I should say, again, the right likes to cast it as if it's all the left who are the oldies. But the question of what kind of an appetite for a fight they have is is a real one. And I think that the, the younger, um, and we can think about this generationally rather than just in terms of left and right, the younger constituency of the Democratic Party have much more of an appetite for the kinds of fight that Osita is talking about. And there is an appetite for overturning the filibuster. And as far as whether that turns us into a banana republic, all it means is that we can actually get things done instead of being deadlocked, as we have been certainly since McConnell has been in charge of the of the Senate, the obstructiveness that has just, you know, overtaken American politics. And, you know, and, and I'm simply not going to listen to criticisms of the idea of that, you know, of, of a president um, simply ripping up the previous presidency after four years of Trump literally just reversing Obama because it was Obama. So it's not as if Biden is going to be introducing that. It's something we have to move beyond. And eliminating the filibuster would be one particular weapon that would enable us to do that. But people do, Danny, recognize the seriousness of that, which is why it's not something that, that people have done or are taking lightly. We recognize what that would mean. But it is it may be that we are left with no choice, thanks to the obstructionist tactics that we've been dealing with and the deadlock that has that has meant that government has not been able to do anything for, you know, living memory, basically. Asita, how worried are you that the Republican Party becomes properly the party of the American working man and woman and seeks to represent them and actually in many respects persuades them that it is representing them and leaves your party and leaves you, radical or not, with a kind of educated, city-dwelling rump, as it were, of people, albeit in the areas of America where they make the most money, but but a, a party that can't properly reach out across the whole country. I'm not really worried very much at all. I, I don't think that a party that is about to oppose the $15 minimum wage increase in Congress is going to be seen by the American people as a consistent ally of the working class. I think that if you look at the actual demographic breakdown of where people voted and how they voted in this past election, Democrats still got most of the people who were uh, poor and, and making under $50,000 in this country. Now, there is a difference there racially. People, when they talk about the working class in this country, tend to implicitly assume that they are talking about a white working class person that is amenable to Trump. Black people, Hispanic people are also working class. Now, there was a, an important development on that front in this election where we did see Donald Trump making up a little bit of ground with African-American and Latino voters. And I think that is because you have seen the Democratic Party over the past couple of decades begin to take these demographic groups for granted. I live in Baltimore, a city that's been governed by Democrats for years, and it still is plagued by a lot of problems, plagued by poverty, plagued by violence. This is true in a lot of urban areas. And Trump did speak to this kind of concern and this angst during the RNC, over the course of his campaign, he did make efforts to reach out to African-American voters. And apparently some of that did make up some ground. Now, he still lost overwhelmingly. But, but to, to answer your question more directly, I'm, I'm not so much concerned that the Republican Party is going to be seen as the party of the working class as I am that you have people who are working class in this country begin to disengage from politics altogether. They're not seeing anything from either party that they can really hold on to and say this is going to improve my life. And this is ultimately... Part of the responsibility Biden has, he has to show people that he can implement an economic agenda that really directly improves lives, that isn't just talk, that isn't playing from the same kind of playbook you've seen people in the middle play from in terms of policy since the Clinton era. And these are actually going to turn the page. That's, that's the task that he has, not just politically, but as I think as a policymaker. A final couple of thoughts before we hand this over to people to, to ask questions. Danielle, you're a foreign policy expert. Is there such a thing, do you think, as a healing, united foreign policy, a foreign policy that brings kind of sensible people around the nation to, together that he could follow? <laughs> I don't know whether everybody could hear me or see me sigh. I wish that foreign policy were at the centre of, of, of anything. Uh, you know, obviously, when something bad happens, foreign policy is front and centre, you know, after a 9-11 or, or, or even at the outset of COVID, you know, we're focused intently on, on, on the perpetrators or where it came from. But generally speaking, one of the biggest challenges that we face is that, is that you know, the average American thinks very little about national security policy 
And and I completely understand that. And, you know, it's it's important when it's important, but, you know, it's not important before you get up in the morning and, and, and go to work or go to your kitchen and work, as is my case. This this for us is 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 you know a, a long term and an absolutely nonpartisan or a bipartisan challenge. Will there be something that our allies like? Of course. I mean, you know, I, I can't. I cannot think of on the you know with one hand the number of of countries where Donald Trump was was well beloved, but. While I think that there may be there may be some happiness in 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 certainly in Europe and and perhaps elsewhere uh, with with Biden's ascension to the White House, the challenges are going to remain the same. And and you know I said this I say this all the time. The challenges that Biden faces will be the challenges that Trump faced and wasn't able to solve. You know whether it's the transatlantic alliance or it's Iran or it's North Korea or it's Russia or it's China. And and unfortunately, the differences between us on on how to approach those issues are not Donald Trump problems. They're America Europe problems, and they're also intractable challenges. You know, there are very few right answers. So, you know, will it be? Will will the world be safe again for cocktail parties? Well, once we're after COVID, yes, probably there'll be no Trump pushing everybody around. But will the problems actually be solved? I'm less sanguine about that. Can I just take one of those that you mentioned briefly, Iran, where obviously, you know, there is a a potential for him making quite a big change in policy, going back to trying to revivify the, the, the Iran deal, the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, number one, can he do that, do you think? And number two, would it have anything like the desired effect? Well, you know, that's what old people like me call the $64,000 question, isn't it? The Iranian government is, is a player in this game, unfortunately. And and what we have seen is that, look, Iran has its own exigencies. They've got their own presidential elections coming up. They've got their own politics. And they have stepped very far outside of the JCPOA, the so-called Iran deal. In addition, they've made a number of demands that it's going to be very hard to walk back on and that it's going to be very difficult for Joe Biden, even if he wants to, to deliver on. They're asking, in effect, for reparations for the last four years. Okay, Joe Biden may be willing to give them a little money, but he's not going to be willing to hand them a pallet full of cash, as his predecessor did in a more hopeful era. And so I'm... You know, I, I see that he has a different approach. I know they're already talking to the Iranians. The Iranians just sentenced another American, either today or yesterday, uh, to, to a prison term. That's not going to make Biden's life any easier either. So it's, it's going to be a much more complex challenge than I think that many people, you know, many people hope. Okay, to the questions. Let's get the first one. Whilst the case for impeachment of President Trump is growing daily, does the panel think... It will be in the best interest of the United States and his presidency to pursue this. It's asked by Robert Smith. Sarah, what do you reckon? Well, Biden doesn't decide whether to pursue the impeachment. And that's a very important point here, because this is not about speaking. We spoke about banana republics a moment ago. This is not about presidential retaliation against opponents. And that's a really, really important point. Having said that, given that the House is has voted to impeach Trump and that he can't, you know, that the view is that he can be impeached after inauguration and that one of the purposes of, well, there are two main purposes to doing that, right? One is to say sedition is wrong and we don't stand for it. It's illegal. And it is to get that on the record and to make sure that there are repercussions for inciting insurrection and trying to overturn a legal uh, free and fair election. And the second reason for doing it is that it enables them to vote afterwards to decide that he can never run for office again. And that is a very serious consideration. But I think the first one is reason enough, frankly, to say that we do not tolerate sedition (laughs) That presidents are not supposed to engage in sedition is reason enough. And then to stop him from holding office again is for the reason. Now, there are questions here that have been raised about to what degree it would be incredibly disruptive to do that further down the road. Do we want Trump to get back in the spotlight in three months time for him to say that this is political? You know, his witch hunt uh, thing that he likes to claim that that's back again. Certainly not. So I think that it, if it is going to be done, be put to the Senate for trial, it needs to be done expeditiously. 
McConnell has indicated that he is willing to, for, unlike the last time, he's willing to actually listen at the trial and allow evidence. And um, in my view, that's an incredibly important thing for the political crisis that we talked about at the top um, to begin healing that specific political crisis and beginning to reestablish the very basic rule of law in the heart of our government. So in my view, we absolutely need to do it, but we need to do it quickly and we need to do it as cleanly as we can. Okay, a couple of questions about social media and more generally about what social media does to us or might be doing to us. I suppose I have to say that as a BBC person. How will Joe Biden be able to tackle the rise of right-wing conspiracy theories such as QAnon? Danielle, when you look at the Republican Party and you look at, well, actually some of its people have recently been elected to Congress, never mind Joe Biden, how, how does the party deal with that? I think this is a real challenge. You know, look, the problem with social media is that it, it amplifies, it joins, and it provides people with a sense of community who, you know, who, who used to feel like outsiders and who rightly should have felt like outsiders because they were outside the mainstream of acceptable society and acceptable legal norms and acceptable norms overall. You know, th- this is going to be a very, very fraught fight and not just for the Republican Party. The Republican Party, like the Democratic Party, has always has always seen a few wackos in their ranks and, and even dangerous wackos, I would say, um, if I can use that extremely, you know, political science term. Um, <laughs> but but how, we, how we deal with these First Amendment questions how we how we deal with except you know expressions of 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 views that are not just outside the mainstream but are unacceptable but not lawless is a real question that confronts us and not just us you know you the uk to a certain extent had this debate around brexit and you know i would say that it was much smaller much less fraught than ours but this is a this is a huge challenge and and I will be frank with you and say on on the one hand I am horrified with the notion of subcontracting to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and everybody else the right to police anybody's speech. Uh, on the other hand this is a dangerous uh, power and uh, you know we saw this at the we saw this at the at the at the riot and the invasion of our capital bringing people together who were not necessarily connected but were like-minded in their you know radical fringe right-wing ideas and look it's very tough and you, you the reason you hear me meandering all over the place is because there's for me there's no good answer yeah yeah, it's an interesting one. We've had another another kind of allied another allied question has come too. So, well, in fact, it's saying exactly that, it, it should is is this the time now for action in spite of First Amendment protestations, as the questioner puts it, and they wonder whether the German model might be the one to to follow. But I mean, it, it, could there be Danielle? Just to dr- drill down on that, could there be? Do you think? a bipartisan view that it is time to act and that these companies are to be regarded as publishers or whatever it is. So this is the the great Donald Trump crusade, right? This is the weird tangential issue over which he vetoed our National Defense Authorization Act or threatened to veto. Uh, No, actually vetoed and then was overridden for the first time in his presidency. Sorry, our news news cycle moves so fast. Sometimes I forget what stupid thing happened in the last hour. Um, And that is is the Section 230, which basically allows platforms like Facebook and Twitter et al., to avoid the strictures that exist for the Daily Mail, the Sun, the New York Times, uh, and and that does seem that does seem unequal. Uh, on the other hand, the New York Times controls who publishes in the New York Times. Twitter doesn't control who has who has a, a, a platform in quite the same way, and. We have proven ourselves, this has grown so fast and so beyond what I think people anticipated, that we have proven ourselves incapable of having these conversations. On the other hand, like I said before, you know, this is a huge slippery slope, okay? What is unacceptable? 
And what is acceptable is very much in the eyes of the beholder. And in America today, we are tipping very quickly towards Orwellian, uh, Orwellian groupthink and groupspeak that makes people very nervous. All right. Osita, we had a question specifically for you. Osita talked about structural challenges within the American system. Is it not time to scrap the U.S. Constitution, a document written by slave-owning white men in 1787, write a new constitution. The constitution is treated like a kind of sacred document that is written before the invention of cars, TV, airplanes, the internet, nuclear weapons, electricity, etc., etc., etc. Time to rewrite the constitution. Well, I've, I wrote a piece about exactly this question, actually, in the fall, and I said, yeah, there, there, at a certain point, it will make sense for us to draft a new document or come to some kind of new constitutional regime. I am wary of doing it now because the people in American politics who are most interested in a new constitutional convention at the present moment are actually people on the right. They hope to do things like remove the direct election of senators. They, you know, we, This is being backed by a lot of corporate in, Republicans and corporate interest groups who think that they can get things out of the constitution and impose things like a balanced budget amendment that would constrain the power of government and take power away from the American people. Those are the people who are interested in the Constitutional Convention right now. And I think if we had one today, they would probably win out those debates and deliberations and that process. But at some point in the future, I think it will make a whole lot of sense for us to rethink this document. I mean, we've had over two centuries of experience with it. We've seen democracies across the world grow up that we could learn from and draw from. I don't think there's any particular reason why we should feel fixed and attached to it, particularly given that when the Constitution was drafted, there had been a formal Constitution, Articles of Confederation, that the founders could have chosen to amend through the process set out by the articles. They chose instead to scrap it in a kind of really wild process. There's this book called The Founders' Coup by Professor Michael Clarman that I recommend anybody interested in this question read because it outlines how kind of ad hoc <laughs> the drafting of the document we currently have is. But I do, I do think at some point it'll be necessary for us to confront this question seriously. One point I, I want to make uh, that was hinted at earlier is that if you think that we're in the middle of a political crisis in this country, you should take seriously the fact that we are in a political crisis in part because of the design of our institutions. Donald Trump lost the popular vote in 2016. If it had been up to the American people themselves, he would not have been president to begin with. But we had a system in place, the Electoral College, that brought him to victory. He could have been impeached and removed in the first impeachment that we did. But the counter-majoritarian design of the impeachment process left him in office and protected him. And it seems like it, it's not actually sure that he's going to be impeached this time either, even given what happened at the Capitol, again, given how difficult it is to convict. So we are in the situation that we're in, in large part because our institutions have been designed in such a way to entrench power within certain <laughs> constituencies in this country at the expense of the majority of the American public. And I think that's something that if it's not going to be Joe Biden, somebody at some point is going to have to be straight with the American people about. All right. That very interesting answer. Thank you. Um, uh, you mentioned guns earlier on, Sarah um, Churchill, and we've had a question about that, as you always would from a British audience, because we look across the pond and there's almost nothing stranger about you all. What are the prospects for gun control? John S. asks. Well, I think the prospects for gun control now that we have the Senate are pretty good. And the NRA declaring bankruptcy yesterday, I think, also uh, Im uh, improves our chances. Somebody tweeted, this is a very, very dark joke, but I think it's right, tweeted, turns out the NRA couldn't survive a year without school shootings, which is, you know, as I say, it's a very, very dark and macabre joke, but it is an accurate description of how bad things have gotten in the United States. What I would say is, as an American of a certain age, is that I am very, very aware that this is a new problem in American life. When I was growing up, school shootings were not a thing. I didn't hide under desks. These are new gun laws, that, and they're really kind of post-Columbine that, that the NRA took off in the way that it did. And so for me, when I see how new something is, I know it can be reversed. I know that it's contingent. It's deeply embedded now. There has been a generation of what is, in my view, brainwashing about about the Second Amendment, which is deeply distorting its meanings and its history in order for the NRA to sell guns. But they, uh, we are now in a much stronger position to at least pass gun le sensible gun legislation, I'm not talking about repealing the Second Amendment, but to at least have decent gun legislation and decent gun control. But the fact is, is that I think that is, as in most uh, entrenched issues in 
American life and, and of some of the ones that Osita was talking about as well. They absolutely, as he says, come down to our institutions. But in in terms of the practice of American politics right now, it, come to, it comes down to campaign finance reform. And until we actually get a decent legislation in place to stop the rampant corruption of lobbying, I mean, it's legal corruption that is lobbying, we're going to continue to have these entrenched problems with particularly with healthcare and with guns. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting uh, uh, question that, isn't it? Just a, a sort of supplementary for you, Sarah, on that. Does that mean, because you think of the Biden administration and the people that they're surrounded with, uh, you know, family members, friends themselves, the organizations that they've been involved with, uh, particularly kind of tech companies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to, to what extent can this administration free itself from those kinds of pressures? Because I think the answer, honestly, is, is, is not greatly. Well, again, though, I think we need to remember that, uh, you know, the, the presidency in this way is, in, in some ways, it's symbolic, this transfer of power that's happening right now and this idea of the new administration. It's the legislature that draws up laws. It is Congress that initiates legislation, not the president. This is, you know, the the uh, unitary and executive presidency is, again, something that is a recent development and a deeply politicized one. But at the end of the day, Congress Congress is supposed to draw up the laws. Now, of course, in reality, the president has a lot of room for leading on that. But in fact, Congress, in many ways, has more power than the president. So the real shift is, again, the rendering McConnell Senate minority leader. That's where we're going to actually start to see some shifts in power. But we have such a narrow majority in the Senate that we're not going to have a clear win. And we, as Asita said, you know, with centrist Democrats, you know, like Manchin and Sinema, you know, it's not at all clear that they're going to have a slam dunk at, you know, in various kinds of, of fraught political issues like this. So again, as, as we've been saying all along, I think, you know, a Biden administration can make some progress. Everybody needs to be realistic about how much progress can be made. But, you know, the to, to try to turn the tanker of the last four years um, is going to be slow, but it's actually going to be really necessary. And, and I think that some of the, I'm really interested in these symbolic questions about how much power symbolism can do for reversing course like that. And I think we can also underestimate how important it will be to return to some of these older norms. And that will mean that Biden will be able to get some momentum and that there is, as I as I said earlier, deep political will on the part of the electorate for some of these reforms. So I am cautiously optimistic that we can get some of them through. Question for you, Danielle. I'd be interested to have Danielle's view. This questioner says on this, is it a good idea potentially to uh, exercise more of a policy of isolation rather than a policy of intervention to other countries? That feels like a softball, but I know that my mother isn't on, so... uh... (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, No, I don't think it's safer. Uh, Look, you know, uh, as much as as much as everybody likes to revile American interventionism, the reality is that much depends upon uh, America's role in the world. uh, And uh, it's not simply, you know, it's not simply the fact of, of having troops in places. It's also our willingness to you know, to to patrol and to keep the peace of what we call the global commons of the sea lanes that are now open, but that if China has its way, for example, in the South China Sea will not remain open, that around Africa, you know, just talking about something that's not about great power rivalry, but about, for example, piracy, where where we are not, there are, there are pirates, there are criminals. I think that America that uh, an America that retreats into itself is an America that is abdicating its responsibility in the world. When we can do things with our allies, when we can act with our allies, when we can act in partnership, that obviously is all the better. But the reality is that increasingly it's very difficult for our partners to act. We saw that in the failed Obama intervention in Libya when our friends in France ran out of bombs and our friends in the UK ran out of ammunition. You know, we're talking here about Libya, not about the Soviet Union. (laughs) 
And so, you know, what we recognize is that is that there are challenges in the world, that they're challenges to things that all of us, every one of us on this podcast presentation hold dear. And that defending those things has enormous value, not just to our own freedom, not just to the things that, that, that we like or enjoy, but to, but to human freedom around the world, to, to, to people's well-being. And uh, I think we should continue that. Uh, Danielle, Trump never believed any of that that you've just said so eloquently when you, when you put those points about why American power matters around the world does that mean that there is a foreign policy that appeals to a, a wide section of Republicans, but, but has to leave behind the kind of the, the Trump part of the party, both inside Congress and outside? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I wish I was speaking for anybody but myself. I wish I was speaking for the party. I'm not. And the reality is that there are very substantial chunks of both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party that embrace a an American withdrawal from the world that I believe fool themselves into thinking that either we make things worse when we're engaged or that we can simply choose engagement you know, at a convenient moment for us, but that we don't need to be out there, that we don't need to have a forward posture as the military would call it. I think that's a lie. Uh, unfortunately, over the last 100 years, what we've seen is that in order to be persuaded of that, most Americans, regardless of their political party, need a crisis. And unfortunately, over the last 100 years, every decade, we've had that crisis. It, it, it really would be, you know, the, the right argument to make is not, should America be willing to go to war, for example, or should America spend this on its military? The right argument is, what can we do more effectively to preempt the kinds of situations where we see these crises build up? Let me tell you, if I wanted to go out and, you know, give a speech in middle America about this, whether it was in a Democratic stronghold or a Republican stronghold, I would not get a ton of applause for that. Because it's just, you know, it's not front and center of people's concerns, you know, for a whole variety of, of reasons that are perfectly justifiable. But because, because people like me have failed in making that case in a way that is persuasive, we have these waves of isolationism. And, uh, you know, this is why I've made the argument over the last decade that for, for many of us who work in national security in Washington, our alliances are not with between the left, you know, between Democrats and Republicans separately, it's internationalists versus isolationists. You know? and, and, and for me, that remains the battle that we will have to join for the next, for the foreseeable future. Okay. Back to domestic affairs. And this really does matter for the course of the Biden presidency, because you, of course, have elections and like other people in other nations have, I don't know, baths or whatever, and you've got um, 2022 already looming, really, and plenty of people will be thinking about it, raising money for it, et cetera, et cetera. So a simple question, how do you think the Democrats will do in the 2022 midterms? Will they retain the Senate? Uh, indeed, will they retain the House? Will the Republicans make gains? It's a really interesting one, Asita, isn't it? Because it, you would have expected that the Republicans would make gains as they normally would when the, the non-president's party does, but everything's a bit up in the air, isn't it? What, what's your, put it, look in your crystal ball and tell us what do you think will happen in 2022? Well, I think those of us who live in crystal balls for a living have been really embarrassed by the last uh, four years in American life. So I, I'm very worried about doing so. All right, we'll promise not to play it back but, to uh, you then. But, you know, I, I think it's very hard to tell. I mean, it, it depends in large part about how successful Biden is in actually implementing his agenda. I, I, I think that all of the kind of internal division people are speculating about on the Republican side isn't going to matter a whole lot. Go back again to the Obama administration, where you had this big insurrection in the Tea Party, where you had uh, people on, on the right-wing fringe challenging Republican candidates and saying the Republicans had bailed, been, you know, traitors to conservatism. And people said, well, does that mean the Republican Party is going to split up and there's going to be this huge break? Actually, Republicans won the House in 2010. They went on to win the Senate in 2014. And in 2016, they won the presidency and full control of the federal government. So all of this 
stuff people are, are talking about in terms of internal division and whether the party can survive Trumpism, I'm not sure that has electoral impact. So we'll we'll just have to wait and see. I, I think it depends upon what Biden is able to accomplish, whether people are seeing direct results from his presidency in terms of an economic recovery. Those are the main factors. I, I don't know that all of the unrest and what we're witnessing happen on, on the right right now will make that much of a difference. But it could. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Sarah? Well, I agree. I think it's going to come down a lot to the success of, of this administration, and in particular, absolutely, the question of economics. If that's what voters always vote first along you know, economic um, issues. And that's been really what's been driving American politics, certainly you know, over the last 12 years. But I do think, and I mean, I'll, I'll defer to Osita on this question, but I do think that my view, not of a crystal ball, but of what's been happening, so rather, you know, the near past rather than the, the um, near future, is that I do see racial politics being more and more of a, of, a, of a political bellwether. And the question about how well, in particular, the Biden administration handles questions of racial justice, I think will be really important to you know, to, to getting out the vote and therefore to gaining on the, tr- the, the traction that we've been building. You know, people talking about the ways in which the DNC needs to learn from Stacey Abrams' model in Georgia and learn how to create a coalition of black and brown voters and to get people out there, to get them, you know, believing again that the Democrats will um, pass legislation that matters to them. And then, as Osita rightly says, then it completely depends on whether they actually are able to do that. But having said a moment ago that it's down to Congress to pass legislation, as it is, of course, Biden knows better than anybody there about how Congress works. Um, he knows how to get laws passed. He's been in Congress for 50 years. So, you know, that's why I remain cautiously optimistic that they will be able to a- achieve those kinds of gains. But history says, as you began with your question, Justin, history says that um, we should expect the American public does not like for one party to hold all three branches of government. And that's very, very consistent. So I think we should expect a reversal in 2022. Sarah, Asita, Danielle, as well. Thank you all so much. We have reached the end of the road, at least for us. But my goodness, it's a fascinating and long and winding road ahead of us. And thank you all, particularly those of you who ask questions, but actually everyone who's taken part as well. Huge, huge thank you to you. And um, I hope you've enjoyed it. From me, a very good evening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run. Or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.